The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning in reverence of reading God's holy word as we read the first three verses in Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And all God's people said, Would you pray with me? Father God, this is my very favorite time. Not just my favorite time in this service. But my favorite time of the entire week. I have the privilege of standing in this place before your people knowing that we're about to hear from you as we read your word as we study your word as under the power of your spirit we are changed by your word that there's a people in this room right now and they're, they're here for that they're not here to be entertained they're not here to They're not here to hear jokes and stories. Father, they're here to meet with you. So as we pause for this moment now and we steady our hearts, we ask you to sharpen our minds. Father, it's my favorite thing. Knowing that what comes next doesn't rely on my abilities, doesn't rely on how we performed over the last six days, that it's all in you and in your power. So, Father, I'm excited to see what you will do next. Do what only you can do, please. God, we know that you will. For it's to your glory. It's in the name of your son that we ask it. Amen. So at high noon on Good Friday three hours after Jesus had been first crucified, the sunlight failed and there was darkness over all of the earth. Jesus knew that this moment was coming. It was the very reason for which he had been born. His whole life had been a slow, steady march towards this darkness. 
and yet he, dread, he dreaded it more than anything that we could ever imagine. You remember his cry there in the Garden of Gethsemane. About 12 hours before this, is he was there alone with the Father, and he was crying out to him. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, and yet not my will but yours be done. This was a thing that filled Jesus with dread to the point of death. This was a thing that caused him to sweat great drops of blood. This was a thing that caused him to cry out to the Father. The Son pleading with the Father, Father, if there is any other way to save these people, let's do that. But there was no other way. Now Jesus knew this, but in the perfection of his humanity, he wanted to avoid this moment. He did not want to experience this darkness for one second because this was the darkness of God's judgment. This was the cup of his wrath. This was the punishment that is due to all God's people for every last sin that we have ever committed. You see, the payment for even just one sin is eternal death. It's an eternity in this place that Jesus calls outer darkness, a place where the worm does not die and where joy cannot be found, a place where the fires are not quenched and the cries are not responded to, a place that I've come to call never-ending death because it's there that the damned find themselves always dying but never at peace, never at rest. It's there where man meets with God, no longer as comforter and friend, but as judge and executioner. So on this spring day some 2,000 years ago, God took all that hell was meant to be for his people and he unleashed it upon his son. This was a transaction of sorts. You see, despite Jesus' unending righteousness, despite his infinite perfection, God took the sins of his people and he placed them upon his son. Jesus willingly took them upon himself. Along with those sins, of course, came this darkness that can be felt, the curse, the wrath of God in undiluted concentration. You see, Jesus looked at the thing that he hated most, everything about sin, everything about this curse. It was all contrary to Jesus' nature. And yet looking at it for our sake as our representative, as our perfect substitute, Jesus took it all upon himself without even a hint of comfort. You see, on this day, there was no voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There was no angel sent at this moment to strengthen him. For the first time ever, Jesus was unable to feel the comforting face of his father, the blessed presence that he had never known. He had never known any absence from his father, and yet at the very zenith of his suffering, his father's wrath all but spent it was at that moment that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Truly, the son was abandoned and cursed so that you and I might be clothed in his perfect righteousness. The son felt truly forsaken at this moment so that you and I might never know that experience, that we might always know the face of God looking at us in joy and in pleasure and in blessing. We can behold his face because he turned his face away from his son at this moment. Now, if you've gathered with us at any point over these last 12 months, excuse me, 12 weeks, then you have surely heard this message over and over and over again. It's because I can't think of anything better for us to hear. This is the only message that saves. This is the only message that strengthens the saints and makes sure that we endure to the end. You see, many men, they preach about the cross of Jesus Christ. Many men, they stand in churches just like this one, and through great tears, they plead with their people, would you please just look to the cross? but they never get around to talking about what actually happened there. What was actually accomplished? How was our redemption won? And because of this, 
what we'll find is that there's so many men that call themselves Christian, they have no real understanding of the most pivotal moment in redemptive history. They're clueless about this at the very core of Christianity. So I ask you to hear me very, very clearly. If we preach the cross of Jesus Christ is nothing less than an example of Jesus' obedience. If we preach the cross of Jesus Christ is nothing more than expression of God's hatred for sin. Even if we preach the cross of Jesus Christ is nothing more than a picture of God's love, then we have no hope. A gospel like that leaves men lost and spending the rest of their lives trying to earn favor and be made right with God. Do you understand? As we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, I affirm, I absolutely affirm that what we see here in this moment at this place is the ultimate picture of the son's submission. What we see in this place is God's infinite holiness in its response to sin. What we see here is the ultimate picture of God's endless love, all of those things coming together perfectly at this moment. To those truths I say an absolute amen and amen. But if we stop there, we miss the purpose of all this. You've got to understand that this isn't just about God trying to impress you. This isn't just about God setting, certainly isn't about God setting some standard for you to achieve. All of this, the purpose, the purpose in Jesus' perfect life, the purpose in Jesus' atoning death, the purpose in Jesus' powerful resurrection, it was that God might be glorified in the ransom, in the rescue, in the purchase and salvation of his people. Do you understand? It is by means of his son's atoning death that you and I are set free from slavery to sin and made right with God. Please see this, church. Something actually happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. This wasn't just an overture from God. There was an actual transaction that took place. Don't you understand? At the cross of Jesus Christ, it isn't just an endorsement for God. It isn't just some extravagant gesture from Christ. To borrow a line from the Scotsman John Murray, what we're witnessing in this text is the accomplishment of your redemption. That redemption which would then be applied by the Holy Spirit at the appointed time to your life. I told you a couple of weeks ago that there is no value in poetic speaking. Well, there's some value, but not at this moment. There is no value in me trying to be cute. So allow me to speak very, very plainly. At the cross of Jesus Christ, he is not merely making the salvation of his people possible. He's guaranteeing it. He's securing it. Again, I say he's purchasing it. We use these terms all the time. We say that we are no longer our own, that we have been purchased at a great price. This is the price. We say that we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood is being spilt and we are being redeemed. Do you understand what I'm saying? The child of God is reconciled to him by the death of his son. Not one ounce of Jesus' suffering was wasted. You must understand this. This is critical. Otherwise, you will completely miss the power of the cross. It'll be just like some kind of a cosmic hallmark card. There's power. There's redemption. There's assurance of eternal life in this as we watch the good shepherd lay down his life for the sake of his sheep. He dies so that you will live. So that when Jesus cried out on behalf of his beloved bride, on behalf of those who are his, those who had come to saving faith in him, when Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished, he meant it. Not just his perfect life, 
not just his perfect obedience, not just that righteousness which would then be applied to his children, but the problem of your sin, the separation that it brought between you and God, the wrath that he once had for you, the eternal death that should be yours once and for all, paid in full, no more price, no more penalty, no more condemnation. It is finished. Your redemption, it has been accomplished. And because it was all of God, it was never in doubt. This is what Jesus meant. This is how Jesus can say that no one will snatch you from his hand. Dear friends, I pray that you see this. I pray that over these last 12 weeks, as we as time and time and time again talked about what actually happens at the cross of Jesus Christ, the trade of his righteousness for your filth, the blessedness that should come upon him in exchange for the wrath that should come upon you, I pray that you've found yourself overcome with joy. Pray that you that have come to repentant faith in Jesus Christ, you have found yourself all the more assured that you can never be lost, that he will never abandon you, that he will not stop short of your eternal glorification. So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. We return to this text. Mark 15, we pick it back up in verse 33. This is the word of God. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in the way that he had breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, again, I ask you to do what only you can do. I ask you to guard my mouth. Do not allow me to say one word that should not be said. Give me boldness to say every word that should be said. Allow us to have proper ears, spiritual ears to hear, and hearts to believe. Father, we love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I do need to warn you before we begin this morning's sermon that this is going to be a bit of a smorgasbord. So I asked, I asked Chuck yesterday and my wife, what is a smorgasbord? Is that a bad word? Because I don't want to say it if it's not a good word. They said they think it's like a whole bit, like a variety of foods that you put out. Is that what a smorgasbord is? Then that's what this is, okay? This, this is an odd sermon for me, and I'm praying that it just feels odd to me and that it makes perfect sense to you as it's delivered because I'm trusting that I'm saying to you what God wants me to say. But you see, there's one thing that all good preachers seem to have in common. They have this ability to just tie their whole message together. They might pull thoughts from all over the place, but in the end, it all just comes together as a nice, cohesive unit. I don't think I'm a very good preacher because this is not that kind of sermon. But again, we're just working verse by verse through Mark's gospel. 
And we do know there's a cohesive story all throughout Scripture. There's a cohesive message all throughout God's perfect word. And so I'm trusting that by the Spirit of God and the power of his word, he's going to have you hear and understand exactly what he wants you to hear and understand. But I think that perhaps because we stopped short, because we finished in the middle of a paragraph last week at verse 38, I think perhaps we've got some loose ends that we need to tie up before we move on to the burial of Jesus. So I'm trusting that as we work through these loose ends together, you're going to see the way that the picture comes together. And so as I sat down, and what, what I do is I just write notes all week. I've got a notepad, and all week as I'm reading God's word, I'm, I'm just making notes to myself, questions that I want to go back and investigate, words that don't make sense to me, word studies that I want to di- dive deeper into. And then as I get to Thursday or Friday, I start trying to just pull it all together and say, okay, wh- wh- what is the picture here? What is it you, that you want God's people to know? So as I sat and I looked at it this week, and I had great trouble figuring out how it all came together. I think perhaps, maybe, there's one main theme to this morning's story. It is this. You remember back in John 12, perhaps, that Jesus is talking about the fact that he would be lifted up. He says in John 12, 32, that when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I think that what we're seeing in this morning's text as we work through this together, we're seeing the, just the varied ways in which God calls people to himself. That there's not some formula There's not some easy-to-understand program that the Lord Jesus Christ, even even when being hung upon a cross, even in his greatest moment of suffering, even in the way he breathed his last breath, he was calling men and women and people from all walks of life to himself. And again, going back to my message from two weeks ago, I do pray that's a comfort to some of you that are praying desperately that Jesus Christ would call some of your children and your spouses to himself. So you'll likely remember that there was something very peculiar about the way that Jesus died. This is not, of course, because of the fact that Jesus was nailed to a cross. There were thousands of men who were crucified. Of course, the majority of the apostles, perhaps, themselves, they were hung upon a tree. And the way that these men would die, they would die from asphyxiation. It was through a a deprivation of oxygen. What would happen there in this cruel form of punishment is that the crucified man, his life would fade from him. Eventually, he would lose the will or the power to push himself up and get a good, nice lung full of air. So he'd have to settle then for short, shallow breath. But then eventually, that wouldn't even be enough. Eventually, that itself would fade. The man would give in, he would suffocate, and he would die. But this wasn't the case with Jesus. You remember that just moments before his death, he was yelling out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know at the very moment of his death, he let out another great cry. The word there was mega. A mega cry that he lets out at that last moment. And Luke tells us what it was. He tells us that in a loud voice, Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John tells us that Jesus then bowed his head, gave up his spirit, and died. Jesus died exactly as he said he would. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Having accomplished all that his father gave him to do, being truly ready for his own glorification, his exaltation, Jesus cried out to the Father, he bowed his head, he gave up his spirit, and he died. No man has ever died like this. Now, if God was silent for the three hours of darkness, if God was silent in those three hours while his son drunk down the cup of his wrath, he spoke loud and clear at the moment of his death. We read that immediately the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the work of God. This was the hand of God that separated this veil. Now, this was more than likely the, the gigantic, this, this ornate curtain that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple. You'll remember that since their time in the wilderness, God had come to dwell with his people. 
But because the people are sinful, because we are sinful, we cannot come freely into the presence of an infinitely holy God and live. And so he commanded Moses to have the people construct this barrier, this physical picture of the separation that exists between sinful men and God. God would come to dwell with his people. He would dwell there in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim, both in the tabernacle in the wilderness and ultimately in the temple there in Jerusalem. But no one could enter except the high priest. And even he only on the day of atonement. And even then only after ceremonial cleansing. Even then only behind a cloud of smoke. Even then only while bringing the blood of the prescribed sacrifices in order to seek forgiveness of the people. But in this instant, it was suddenly, it wasn't a gradual thing. In an instant, with the death of Jesus Christ, this curtain was torn in two. You see, Jesus had entered into the true holy of holies. Not a tent made by human hands. He had entered into the immediate presence of God is the perfect and the ultimate high priest, representing his people as the God-man. He didn't have any sins of his own to atone for. He went in on our behalf, and he didn't go in under the blood of bulls and goats because those things would never do. That's why those sacrifices had to be offered day after day, week after week, year after year. He went in under his own blood, came into the presence of God. He offered himself through the Holy Spirit without blemish to the Father. And it's proof that this offering was received it's proof that this offering was sufficient. It's proof that this old system was no more. God tore this, tor- this curtain in two. No longer was there a need for animal blood. No longer was there a need for earthly priests. No longer any separation between God and man. Any who would be joined to Christ in faith. You see, there was still only one way. There was still a curtain by, through, by which men must come. That curtain was the veil of his flesh. It was only by way of Jesus Christ. No other enemy, intermediary. No other high priest. It was coming through the veil of Jesus Christ's flesh that we could trust that we have hope, that we have access to God, that by being cleansed by his blood, we're not only made right with God, but that we can come to him, that we can cry out to him, that we can come through the curtain of his flesh and have confidence that we will be received. Not just we, but any. All who would come, Jew, Greek, male, female, free or slave, Because of the efficacy of Jesus Christ's atoning death, because of the power of his work as the great high priest, any who would come to God may come freely through Jesus Christ. Now, I referenced to you last week that there was a number of other signs that accompanied the death of Jesus. Now, as if we've already talked about the lights of the whole world going out, we've already talked about this temple, this, this veil in the temple being torn in two, this proof that the sacrificial system was no more. But there's one even more shocking, in my mind, at least to the immediate eye, one perhaps even more shocking sight. Now, before we turn to Matthew's gospel and we look at what this is, I need to say something. You see, we live in a time when so many who call themselves Christian, they, they get really bashful really quick when it comes to the supernatural working of God. They read portions of scripture that talk about just unexplainable things that God has done. And because they can't understand them, because they don't accord with their understanding of the natural working of the natural world, because it doesn't match up with their materialistic worldview, they seek to explain it away. They talk about it as if it's some type of a myth, myth or, or there, there's some other explanation behind just God doing this. Even for many within the visible church, anything that does not match up with their personal experiences, anything that cannot make sense to their own finite minds, they assume that it must not be true. To them, miracles just don't exist. 
Then, of course, there's others. There's others that, that hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, and they're willing to accept that there are some miracles that God has done, but then there's others that all of a sudden they get real sheepish about. Even when God's word is quite clear, even when it's very clear that what we're reading is not poetry, it's not apocalyptic literature, even what we, when what we know we are reading is a narrative, something God did in time, in history, and recorded for us here, they can't help but turn sheepish and try to rationalize it all away. Entire sections of scripture. But beloved, don't you see that we can't have it both ways? We need to be careful. This is a slippery slope, and many men are seeking to build their theology upon it. But if we cannot trust that God literally created everything that is both visible and invisible from nothing, ex nihilo, with just a word, if we cannot trust that God literally caused the fountains from the deep to burst forth and the skies to open up so that it would rain for 40 days and 40 nights while he flooded the entire earth, if we cannot trust that God sent a literal giant fish to swallow a literal runaway prophet to then literally spit him back up on the shore. If we cannot trust that God's people literally battled giants that roamed the land, then on what basis can you trust that he literally sent his son to live a perfect life, die an atoning death, raise from the dead, and that someday he's coming back to deal with your problems once and for all and to save you forever? We don't get to cherry pick. You don't get to pick and choose. God's word determines who and what is true, not the other way around, ever. So if you find yourself poisoning portions of God's word, seeking to remove those portions of God's word that make you uncomfortable, you're treading on very, very thin ice. We must preach the full counsel of God's word, even and, it's even and especially those portions that make us most, most uncomfortable. What did I tell you last week? I'm not entirely sure what to do with the dead dudes that walk out of the tombs. And you know what that tells me? I have no choice but to stand here and try to do something with it. We don't get to avoid these things. How many Christians have said to you after sitting for 10, 20, 30, 40 years in churches, my preacher never talked to me about these things? It's because they teach you in preacher school that you get a small church when you talk about the hard things. So let's take a look. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 51. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So this is immediately following what we've just read in, in Mark. This is right at the same time. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So again, just like Matthew or just like Mark and Luke, Matthew tells us that the temple curtain is turned into, torn in two, but he also tells us that the earth shook. So this is an earthquake. Apparently it's a large enough earthquake that there were, split, there were splits coming in the rocks, that the rocks had split. Now historians tell us that there was all kinds of earthquakes, both large and small, in Judea around this time. We can go there today and you can find through um, ge ge uh, geological surveys, things like that, you can find the scars that still exist the effects that have come as a result of these earthquakes. And so, apart from timing, apart from the fact that it had perfectly corresponded with the death of Jesus Christ, the sun going dark, the veil being torn, apart from, uh, apart from the timing of this thing, an earthquake in Jerusalem would not have been all that extraordinary to anybody. I mean, certainly people are still scared during earthquakes, but there would have been nothing supernatural about this. They would not have immediately seen God's hand at work. Verse 52, the tombs were also opened. So, I told you a number of times that there 
on the, uh, what would that be, the western slope of the Mount of Olives is the largest and oldest Jewish cemetery in all the world. Something like 150,000 men and women have been, have been buried there. It's this side of the Mount of Olives. It looks towards Jerusalem and towards the temple. And so during the days of, of Solomon's temple and Herod's temple, men would have been buried in caves there along along that mountain and then even today they've got more traditional tombs that are there perhaps Matthew's just talking about some smaller cemetery that was in the confines of Jerusalem but either way apparently this earthquake was significant enough that it broke open the tombs so if these were if these were caves that had stones rolled over them the stones were rolled away and then the caves themselves the walls to the tombs themselves they were split and again apart from God's perfect timing this would not have been something that people immediately attributed to the hand of God big earthquakes happen when big earthquake happens, the, the earth will split, even tombs will bust open. But then we come to what happens next. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That's not normal. And coming out of the tomb, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So it says here, the body of many saints. These are the people of God. These are people who had been joined to God by repentant faith. These people were saved in the exact same way that you and I were saved, by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They had been looking forward in faith, in trust to this moment, although many of them had very little understanding of the details. Many of them had very little understanding of how God was going to do this. We find that some of them had been searching the writings of the prophets. Many of them, they saw beyond the pictures, the copies, the shadows of the sacrificial system. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, these men knew that they could not earn their own salvation by keeping the law. These people knew that all the rest, these were just signs pointing forward to something greater, pointing forward to a time when God would come. They saw the law for what it was. They knew that the law revealed to them God's perfect holiness. They knew that the, that the law revealed to them that they could not attain to God's perfect standard. They saw the law as evidence that they were in desperate need of a Savior. They saw the sacrifices for what they were, a picture of their need for cleansing, a reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, and again, a foreshadow of the one who would come and save them, a once and for all sacrifice that would come. Now again, they didn't have all this picture perfectly buttoned up. Many of them, their theology would have been much different than ours, and yet what they knew was that salvation must come from God because I can't get there. In my own power, in my own efforts to keep the law, I can't do it. And so they would continue to come to the temple. They would continue to offer the sacrifices. They would continue to observe the feasts. They would continue in love to keep the law. And yet we know that these were just evidences of their faith in God. Evidences that salvation would someday come from him. Because they knew that they did not have a righteousness of their own that could make them right with God. There was no righteousness that they could muster that could reconcile them to God. And so in faith, they waited for a savior from heaven. Again, without fully understanding what the picture would look like. I'm reminded of a man called Simeon, an old man who was there in the temple. You remember that Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, had brought him into the temple, as was the custom. Brought him there, and they run into this old man, and the man was allowed to take Jesus into his arms, and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. He says, now I can die. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The salvation that you have prepared, prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The Simeon, he knew. He knew that God was sending a savior. He knew that salvation was coming from above. And somehow, coming into the temple, they says that he came into the temple in the spirit that day, that somehow coming into the temple, under the spirit, he saw this child and he knew this is it. 
I know it when I see it, and this is it. This is the salvation that I've been waiting for. This child will do what I cannot do. Again, I say these people were saved in the very same way that we are, through repentant faith, spirit-wrought, repentant faith in Jesus Christ, the only Savior sent from heaven. That for them, their faith, as for us, their faith was credited to them as righteousness. At the appointed time, their redemption came. So now that it had, now that the true day of atonement was upon them, now that the Passover of God was really here, now that their redemption had been accomplished, we read that the long-awaited Savior, he dies, and their tombs bust open, and they come walking out. And we're not told how many. Was it millions? Was it hundreds? Was it dozens? Was it just a few? We don't know exactly how many, and we're not told who they are. But Matthew tells us that these believers, they came out. But you notice he says something interesting here. He says that they didn't come out of the tomb until Jesus was resurrected. Do you see that? And so there's a couple of options in terms of what I think could be happening here. One is that perhaps Matthew is talking about the great earthquake that happened when the angel rolled the stone away from Jesus' tomb. You remember that? That that great earthquake, that was the one that he's referring to here. That at that moment there was the great earthquake, the tomb split open, Jesus of course was resurrected. Immediately these saints were resurrected and they came walking out. And Matthew inserts it here for theological reasons because it goes together. Their salvation, their resurrection, it was purchased with the death of Jesus. I, I don't think that one is right because he also talks about the guards, the centurion and his helpers also seeing this happen. So it seems like this is something that literally happened at the same time is this earthquake at the same time that the veil was torn. That could be it, though. The other option is that he is, in fact, talking about an earthquake that happened immediately at the moment of Jesus' death, that the tombs were split open, that these people were raised from the dead, but they kept laying in their tombs until Jesus' resurrection. They just didn't come out of their tombs until Jesus' resurrection. That one also doesn't seem right to me, but it could be. There are plenty of men that hold to that. Option three is what seems most reasonable to me. There was this earthquake, the tombs were split open, the dead immediately were, the, the dead remained in their tombs, excuse me, and then immediately upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then they raised and immediately they walked out of their tombs. That the tombs were split open at Jesus' death, but their resurrection did not come until Jesus was raised. Now from a purely theological standpoint, it doesn't matter all that much which of these is true. As Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And this is neither a plain nor a main thing as you can see from my stumbling and my bumbling trying to even understand my own point. But I do believe that that third option is the most likely one. I don't just pull this out of thin air. It isn't just a matter of preference for me. I look back to Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the first fruits. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now, of course, Paul is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the resurrection of all the saints, but I think that the principle still stands. I think that the reality still stands, that it wasn't until Jesus walked out of his tomb it wasn't until Jesus proved that he had defeated death once and for all that these Old Testament saints were then raised and allowed to walk out. This was a foretaste. It was an immediate picture. It was an immediate picture of the blessing that comes, the ultimate blessing that comes with the death and, re death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, namely the resurrection of all the saints. 
that because of our union to him, because we are united to him, because Jesus died for us just like he died for the Old Testament saints. Not only did he die for us, he died with us, or more accurately, we died with him, that we are united in faith to him in his death, that we are united through faith with him in his resurrection. And it then is a picture of this. It's proof that the payment had been received, that it was enough. As Jesus was raised from the dead, it's evidence that the whole believing community had been resurrected with him. God provides us with this miraculous evidence. Assurance that Jesus' death, his resurrection, grants us eternal life. Evidence that though we die for the child of God, though we die, yet we shall live. Now the first century Jewish man or woman, they would have had some understanding of this. The prophets occasionally talked about the dead rising again. The, the words that David read earlier from the prophet Daniel. We read in Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. You see, death has always been the great enemy of man because the wages of sin are death. And because all men sin, it's always been waiting there. It's always lurking out in the distance somewhere, this foe called death. And then as we see with the coming of Jesus Christ, with his crucifixion, as John Owen calls it, the death of death and the death of Christ. Death has put death, the death of Christ has put death to death. He gives us evidence of this, an unmistakable sign, a picture that we can, clues, that we can cling to so that we don't lose hope. So that we don't believe somehow that death has had this final say. Literal dead men walking out of their tombs is evidence that we ourselves will live spiritually after this death. And that we will then be raised again physically at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That truly we have this tangible proof that Jesus has defeated this foe once and for all. Do you understand? Because how else would you be assured of this? Think about all that we talked about with regards to the Olivet Discourse. My understanding of all that Jesus was talking about in the destruction of Jerusalem. I told you that I was sure, I'm confident, I can't say sure, I am confident that what we are seeing there is evidence that Jesus Christ has taken his proper place, the right hand of the Father of all power and authority and dominion, that God is so gracious to his people to give us these physical pictures, to give us these tangible signs as evidence of these spiritual realities. You remember that the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, they were always asking for signs. They were always demanding signs from heaven to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. Proof that he had done what he said he had done. But Jesus always told them, I'm not going to give you a sign. Number one, because the signs are going to do no good. You see, these men, they saw the same things. They saw the destruction of Jerusalem. They saw the earthquake. They saw the tearing of the veil. They saw the darkness in the mid, uh, noonday sun. And yet they would not believe. But for the child of God, he presents us this picture. And then our hearts swell with anticipation. Having read the word of God and believed what he has to say, we know what these things mean. We know that by tearing the curtain in two, he's showing, now you may come to me freely through my son, Jesus Christ. You don't need another intercessor. You don't need any more sacrifices. You don't need to earn your way in. You don't need to crawl down on your knees hiding behind, behind smoke. You can come to me as sons and daughters because of the power, because of the work, because of your redemption accomplished in the death of my son, Jesus Christ. We see the same thing here in the raising of the dead, that this is the ultimate picture of that ultimate promise that you too shall be raised. But I know how physical my people are. I know how they need to see things. I know how they cling to these symbols, these substance. What do we do at the Lord's Supper? It's a gift from him. It's a picture as he comes to meet us here. I told you, he meets you here. You feast upon him. You are strengthened. And he knows how physical we are, so he gives us bread and he gives us drink. 
He's giving us pictures. He's giving us signs. He's giving us things that we can hold on to because we're going to continue to bury our dead. My body continues to fail. I'm only 42, but I'm more aware of death today than I was at 32 or 22. And so as physical death lurks off in the distance, as we continue to bury our dead, we can cling to these physical signs and say, but in Jesus Christ we shall live. That by his death we find life. That's the picture. I'm sure of it. That's what Jesus is doing here and raising these Old Testament saints from the dead. That has to be the purpose, because what else, what else is being accomplished here? Think about it. What else would be the purpose of just dead people getting up out of their tombs and wandering around? Why on earth would God raise these people? They're just going to turn around and die again. We're not told how long they live. Did they go right back to their tombs the next day and die? I, doesn't seem like the pattern, not if we look at a man like Lazarus. And think about Lazarus for a minute. Lazarus didn't live forever. Lazarus died again. Jesus raised him from the dead. Guess what? Lazarus sinned again. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He kept on sinning. He got sick, and then he died. The Sanhedrin wanted to kill Lazarus. Maybe they got to him eventually. We're not told. So what was the point? What was the point in raising Lazarus from the dead? What was the point in putting Lazarus and his family through a second death? We're told. Jesus says that it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. That's the point. The glorification of God. Assurance of the power and the love and the eternal life offered in Christ by God. Evidence that to all of us, by our union in him, that God will be glorified in our salvation, in our resurrection, in our new life. You remember that before Jesus goes to Lazarus, he says plainly to his disciples, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe that God might be glorified in the belief of the saints. That's the purpose. That's the picture. That's why these dead men walked out of the tomb. They weren't ghosts. They weren't mere spirits. They were just raised. Again, I say, I have to imagine, they kept on sinning. Eventually, they got sick and they died again. But the point was that we might believe, that we might see the glory of God in Christ, and by seeing, we would believe. Well, apparently, the message reached some folks. So returning to Mark's gospel, back in verse 39 of this morning's text. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw the way in which he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So this man was a centurion. He was a commander in the Roman army, over 100 men. He wasn't a Jew. He was an outsider. Now, we're not told what all this man saw. We know that he wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ, so he wouldn't have sat under his teaching. He wouldn't have seen a number of his miracles. He probably wasn't there, and he didn't eat the bread from Jesus' hand that he made from nothing. He didn't witness his healings. He probably heard about the raising of Lazarus from the dead, but he hadn't seen it firsthand. And yet, in the way that Jesus breathed his last, was this merely the fact that Jesus simply gave up his spirit like no man ever had? He certainly saw the darkness in the air and felt the earthquake. Did he see the dead men walking? We don't know for sure. But there was something about what this man saw that caused this unsuspecting Gentile, unlike the Sanhedrin, unlike the Jewish crowds, they went home beating their breast. They went home beating their breast. They knew something wasn't right. And yet it was this man, this outsider, that said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Matthew tells us that there were others there with him. 
There are other men who came to believe. They were filled with awe. Now, we know that in Greek and Roman thought, this title, the Son of God, it's not always used with the same significance, exclusivity, the, the, the true divine thought that we have with regards to this title. And yet, it does seem as though this centurion came to true saving faith. Luke tells us that the man praised God. And he said, certainly this man was innocent. Dear friends, again, I tell you, we can see even in the way Jesus Christ suffered. Think about him drawing the thief next to him, to himself. That thief who was once railing against him. And yet seeing the way Jesus suffered, seeing the way he would not blaspheme or utter a curse, seeing the way he prayed even for those that hated him and took his life. We see the way that Jesus draws men to himself. Then we see the centurion. This man who was charged with keeping guard over Jesus, making sure that the execution went well. There was no uprising. This man was surely a part of the mockery at some point or another, wasn't he? And yet now, seeing the way that Jesus Christ died, he came to saving faith on this day. God saved him through the way his son breathed his last. Dear friends, do you see what a perfect and merciful Savior we have? Do you see the way he secures your salvation? Not merely laying down your life, not merely praying on your behalf, but drawing you to himself that you may see, that you may glorify God, that you may believe. Verse 40, there are also women looking on from a distance. I don't even know if I have time for this, but I gotta, I've, I've got to say it because, church, we live in an incredibly confused and confusing time. The way the world thinks and speaks about women, frankly, the way the world can't even define what a woman is, it's maddening. More than that, it's heartbreaking. Is a devoted husband of 20 years who married his high school sweetheart? Is a father to three precious little girls? The way that this world has done everything that it can to try and convince women that God's design for them is not enough. It makes me want to scream. Worse than that, perhaps, is the way that even many within the church, they twist his words they twist his words to try and confuse women with regards to this issue of, of womanhood. Now, this isn't the point of this morning's text. We will at some point, I am sure, God willing, we will devote an entire sermon to the concept of biblical womanhood. And yes, I will preach that sermon. But again, I say the way the world attacks God's design for women, the way he looks to those precious children that have been created in his image, who bear all the worth, and the value and the dignity that comes with that. I am not a violent man and I am certainly not a tough guy. But it makes me want to fight. And I need to tell you, church, that when the day comes that I preach the message on biblical womanhood, we will be in for a fight. This world is throwing everything they have at this for some reason. But for now, I'll simply say this. In God's creation of humanity, both male and and female. He had design and intention and beauty in his work. Man and woman, each created to bring him glory, each in their own way, each created for their own purpose in every area of life. None greater, none more significant, none more valued, none more worthy than the other, but different. And as the true church of God, as we seek to maintain and celebrate the differences, as we seek to set women free from being called to do things that God has not called or equipped them to do. I'm not just talking about biology here. I'm not just talking about sexual relations, although all of this seems to work together. It's one just big mess 
that the world has made it into. I'm talking about within the home. I'm talking about wives lovingly submitting to their husbands. I'm talking about husbands sacrificially laying down their lives to protect and lead their wives. I'm talking about within the church. I'm talking about men called to be pastors and elders and shepherds, while women are called to joyfully serve and worship and use the gifts that God has given them to build up the body, including in the teaching of other women. Again, I say, I'm talking about men stepping up and doing the things that God has called us to do. And I'm talking about women being blessed because they don't have to do things that God hasn't called them to do. As we do this, you can be sure that the watching world and many within the Western church, they are going to be furious. They see this precious gift in the proper ordering of all institutions as God has given us as misogynistic restraint. Because for these people, they see leadership as a prize to be won and fought for rather than a responsibility to be received with great fear and trembling. Much like Adam and Eve in the garden, isn't it? They believe that God was too restrictive. They listened to the lies of the enemy that said, God has not truly said this. So as a result, they seek to convince women that the straightforward teaching of God's word will rob them of dignity and honor and ultimately lead them to harm. But beloved, I say to you that nowhere in all the world are women more honored and cherished and safer and happier and more loved than in homes and churches that seek to follow the pattern that Scripture and Jesus Christ himself has set. I gotta stop there. But church, I tell you that Jesus Christ cherished women like no one ever has. He welcomed them into places that were completely unheard of in that day and age. Think about the Samaritan woman that he spoke to at the well. He's just revealed to this woman that he is, in fact, the Christ. Before Peter made his confession, he has met with this woman. And you you remember this woman's reputation, right? This is not the kind of woman that anybody would honor. This is not the kind of woman that anybody would give a special place. And yet Jesus revealed to her that he was, in fact, Messiah. And then when his disciples come back, we read in John 4, verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples, they marveled that Jesus was speaking to a woman. And rabbis, this wasn't their normal pattern, that rabbis or teachers, they would sit with women, especially not women like this, not just a Samaritan woman but a sinful Samaritan woman, that they would sit with them and tell them about the things of God. This was unheard of at that time, but dear children, I tell you that Jesus loved and cherished and invited women into his ministry in ways that no one else ever has, in ways that we should celebrate and delight in. And at the cross, what do we see? Even after all the other apostles have fled. Now John is there, I believe. It seems like John's there, right? Everybody else has fled, but John's there because Jesus looks to John and tells him with regards to his mother Mary, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And that John then took her from that moment to be his mother. I have to believe the reason that John didn't run like all the others was because John had some relationship with the high priest and that made him feel perhaps more safe. You remember that John vouched for Peter and that's why Peter was allowed to come into the courtyard of the high priest and so maybe that's why John felt bold enough to stay there. But other than him, all the others fled. It was just these women Church, praise God for the women who don't run when the men do. 
Praise God for the women that continue on in the faith while the men tuck tail and run like a bunch of cowards. You must understand that many of the things that have gotten disjointed in the American church, it isn't because women are clamoring for responsibility that they're not meant to have. It's because men have dropped the ball because they're cowards, because they're little children that won't grow up. They won't be men and lead their family. They're too busy playing video games and acting like they're 15 years old instead of working and leading and dying for the sake of their wives and children. So we praise God for the women that don't run when the, when the men do. Now, I'm not pandering here. So we see these women, and they were looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. Some people call her Salome. Do you call her Salome or Salome? Y'all say the E? Okay, we're split. I'm going with Salome. (laughs) And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him from Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem, excuse me. So we'll perhaps, we don't have time, we'll perhaps study these women in greater detail at the appointed time because we will run into them again at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You remember that just as these women were the last to be with Jesus at his death, they were the first to be there and recognize the empty tomb, and Mary Magdalene was the first to see him raised. And so these women were truly blessed of God. They were truly precious to Christ. These women had been with Jesus They were faithful followers. They had been with him in Galilee. They had followed him. This was not an easy trip from Galilee to Jerusalem, especially not with children, and certainly some of these women would have had children. It's a difficult move, and so these women were there, and they were ministering to Jesus and the others. Diakonos is the word for ministering here. It's where we get our word deacon from. So these women, they were ministering. So in addition to Jesus' mother Mary, we read that there's Mary Magdalene. Magdalene would have been a reference to her last, not to her last name, but to her place, to the town where she was raised, probably Magdala. Magdala was a fishing town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee on the western shore just south of Capernaum. So much of what we can learn about Mary, we learn from Luke's gospel. Luke 8, 1 to 3, Jesus went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we're told that Mary Magdalene had been possessed by seven demons. Now, we've read accounts of what it looks like to be possessed by demons. This woman would have seemed all but hopeless, completely desperate for sure. The mental and physical and emotional anguish that came with this, we know about these people that many of them, they harmed themselves, Many of them, they, they had great infirmities in themselves. Some of them, they would fall out in seizures and, and roll around on the ground. So this was Mary Magdalene until she met Jesus. And I praise God for that phrase. But then I met Jesus. And we're not told all about her demon possession. We're reminded here that we don't need to know all the sordid details of everyone's past. We don't need to know all the shame and all the scars that you bore when you came to meet Jesus Christ. We just need to know that once I was lost and now I am found. I met Jesus and now I'm something different. We celebrate with you in that. But you can be sure that she, just like all the others, she was healed with just a word. With but a word, these demons were cast out of Mary Magdalene and immediately she was whole. She was well. She was back in her right mind. And that she, along with these other women, they were ministering to the 12. Apparently she had means. Said that they had some some money. They were meeting the needs of Jesus and the others out of their means. So we know from Scripture that Mary Magdalene, she was there at the crucifixion. 
She was there at the burial, and she was the first to see Jesus after his resurrection. Clearly, Mary had a special place in the story of Jesus' life. She was amongst amongst the most privileged Christians, the most privileged believers in all of history. And yet, for some reason, people have always been compelled to add stuff to her life. People want to take unnamed women in Scripture and demand that that is Mary Magdalene that we're reading about. People write stupid books that say that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a baby together. But beloved, this is, again I say, perhaps the most blessed life, the most privileged life in all of early Christianity. We see it in this woman, Mary Magdalene. Because these men had run, she was among the first and most critical witnesses to everything that we hold to today. We don't need to spice up her life. The story that God has written is sufficient. It is more than sufficient. So along with Mary Magdalene, we read that there is Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph. Now we know that Jesus had a brother named James. We know that Jesus had a brother named Joseph. And so some people have said maybe this is just a reference to Mary, Jesus' mother. That that doesn't seem right because he's referred to here as James the Younger or James the Lesser or Little James as the Chosen series calls him. It seems as though this is a reference to one of the apostles. That this is a separation here between James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, and this other James. He's called James, the son of Alphaeus, whenever the 12 are listed. This can get a little bit confusing, though, because we also read about Mary, that she was the wife of Cleopas. So, so maybe is Alphaeus and Cleophas, is this a variant on the same name? Is this not the same woman? Is this Jesus' mother? Is this the wife of just a dude named James, and he's not actually the apostle? We don't know this for sure. We just know that she was there, another Mary amongst a lot of Marys that were there. So you've got two Marys or three Marys at least that are there, and then you've got Salome or Salome. And so if you cross-reference to Matthew, uh, cross-reference to Matthew you get a little bit more information on this woman. So we read in Matthew 7, uh, 27, 56, that we had Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So apparently this Salome, she was the wife of Zebedee. That makes her the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder. Two of the three members of the inner circle. These were amongst the first disciples that Jesus called to himself. These were professional fishermen that had become fishers of men. They had been there whenever Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They had been there when Jesus went up on the high mountain and they saw the transfiguration. They had been there in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there and fell asleep while Jesus was alone praying to the Father. They had witnessed some of the most marvelous things in all the scripture. So are you figuring out who this woman is yet? Are you ahead of me? You remember that she came to Jesus, Matthew 20, 20 to 23. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, you remember back when we studied this text, we talked about the fact that this woman may be Jesus' aunt. It may have been Mary's sister. So maybe she thought she had some privilege because of this. But either way, This Salome was bold. She loved her boys. And in that love, she became foolish and misguided and got her head all twisted up. But she was bold. She came to Jesus on behalf of her boys, and she asked that they could have the most privileged places in his kingdom. Of course, Jesus answered her, you do not know what you are asking. Now, based on the response that we read in Mark's parallel in Mark 10, it seems as though the boys were there as well asking the question. So Jesus, not speaking to the mother, turns to the boys and says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? The boys say, we are able. But Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, 
but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. You ever have a thought on the tip of your brain and you know it's awesome, but you just can't get to it? It happens more the older you get. There's something awesome here, and I'm going to come back to you in two weeks or three weeks or two years or ten years and go, I found it. There is something truly awesome here about this woman, the mother of James and John. She has come to Jesus, and she has said, allow that my boys... These two brothers, they sit at your left hand and your right hand. Jesus, of course, looks and says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Can you undergo the baptism that I'm about to undergo? And the boys, oh, yes, no problem, absolutely. He looks at them and says, okay, look, you will suffer. But these positions of power, they're not mine to grant, but my father has appointed them to the proper people. Now at this moment, as she sees him drinking his cup, she sees him undergoing the baptism. She sees him doing the thing that only he can do to save her boys, to save him. Now she finally realizes just how wrongheaded this request was. She looks at her boys probably when she got home from this and went, you weren't ready. And you weren't qualified. Don't drag me into that kind of stuff ever again. But dear friends, see the way that God has blessed her. He has something else for her. We're reading about her today. We're honoring her today. I pray that you see this, that God has allowed her to witness the most glorious thing in all the world, not only the death, but the resurrection of her son, Jesus Christ, to be a part of the early church. She asked wrongly, but she knew. She knew that Jesus was a king, and she knew that his kingdom was eternal. She knew that he was the only one to place her trust in. She just got it all twisted up in her zealousness for her kids. Moms ever do that? And praise God that he blessed her for it. Praise God that he did not cast her away. Praise God for her faithfulness even as the men ran. Praise God that he called her to himself. And praise, praise God that Jesus continued to hold her. He continued to secure her. That no one could, gra- could rip him from her grasp. Because Jesus Christ held her fast. I don't know what to do with all this. I still don't. I kept thinking... I kept thinking something really witty would come to me by the end. This is just a blank page. I kept thinking something really witty is going to come to me at the end. I'm going to scribble it with my finger to act like I had said it before. But dear friends, I do pray you find hope in this. I do pray you see God calling people to his son from all over, man. All over. You got zealous mamas. You got single women that were once possessed by demons. You got boisterous men who think they're better than they are. You've got blasphemous thieves that are hung next to him on the cross. You've got a Roman centurion that is there. You've got thousands of others in the day to come. Dear friends, I pray you find hope in this. I pray that you think back on your own story and the way that Jesus Christ has called you to himself. I pray that you celebrate this. I pray you know that's not the gospel. The gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ and what was accomplished there. And yet, I pray as you celebrate your own story and the way that God has called you, I pray that you remember that with great fondness. I pray that you look forward with great anticipation to the way he's going to use this same gospel in your hands as you spread it to the world by the power of his spirit to save others, to call them in similar ways. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Again, I thank you for this people, their desire to know you and see you and be changed by your word. I thank you for my ability to be transparent. Father, I thank you that this is not a church that demands that their pastor have all this stuff together. They don't demand anything that's polished. Father, we are just a people gathered together in submission to your word, trusting that you will do what is best. 
trusting that you will take this word and that you will cause great things to happen. So Father, I pray your blessing on this people. I pray now as we stand together to sing songs of praise to you, I pray that you would be glorified in the words that we sing and in the thoughts that we have. I pray that, Father, even the meditations of our heart, that all of this would be properly directed towards you. Father, be with us now. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.